0: Elizabeth Rose Resler, Lisa Whitehouse, Brianna LaToy, Emmeline Eadie, Braxton Walden, Taryn Bradley, Belle Stambolija, Alexa Barrow, Annabella Hibbler, Renee Stone, Nikisa Gregg, and Katie North. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. And for those of you who don't know, all the names that I just read are brand new supporters of the Sleepy Podcast on Patreon.com, uh, which means that they like the show enough where they have generously donated their money um, to being a part of making the show and making it happen. Um, they go to Patreon.com slash Radio and donate a dollar a month, two dollars a month, five dollars a month gets you access to a special Patreon poetry feed where I send you poetry readings twice a month just for donating. And of course, as soon as you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show. And this week um, is pretty special because we're doing another book raffle. Because I had this amazing copy of Old Christmas by Washington Irving here that I got in a used bookstore in Philly while I was on the road. And um, I would love to send it to a sleepy listener. So, if you'd like to be entered in the raffle to win this book, and I'll send it to you with a little personalized note inside uh, of your choosing, then you can just go to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio and donate a dollar or more um, starting today until next Sunday, which is going to be the 22nd. So, at the end of the 22nd, the raffle will close. So, if you'd like to be entered in a raffle to win this copy of Old Christmas by Washington Irving, then just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donate at least a dollar. I wanted to do the raffle for Old Christmas now um, so that by the time of the drawing, I can maybe send it really quick uh, as a great Christmas present. So if you'd like to uh, get this book as a present for a friend, I think it would make a really great one. It's a really beautiful little copy. So Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Levkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, tonight is... Tonight is pretty special. Um, it's my first time recording from this uh, little tiny home van that I live in uh, now, which I'm sure many of you have been hearing a lot about for a long time well it's actually happening and i'm in south carolina right now um i just started driving south in search of sun because i was very tired of the cold weather and the snow in vermont and yeah i I have been chasing sunshine and i found it (laughs) i'm actually recording right now on the edge of a beach um with the back doors open towards the ocean. I'll open them, maybe you can hear. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. I don't know if you can hear the ocean, but I'm pretty much parked in the dunes with the back doors open. And there's a boardwalk right above me and people are looking down wondering who this guy is whispering into a microphone. On the edge of a beach. At sunset. But this has been. A real long time coming. And I I still don't know if it's fully hit me yet. That I'm just on the road. Doing what I've wanted to do for a long time. But here I am. And it's pretty warm. It's still definitely hoodie weather where I am. But it's amazing to be in sunshine doing this right now. So, this will be the first time I've celebrated Christmas and December in slightly warmer weather than it is in Vermont. And, um, I don't know, Christmas time always reminds me of Charles Dickens. So, that is what we're going to be reading tonight. Um, We're going to be reading Oliver Twist, which a lot of you have requested uh, over the last year or so. And, uh, finally, we're going to be reading it tonight. On the edge of uh, Folly Island Beach in Charleston, South Carolina. First sleepy podcast from the road. How cool is that? Alright, that's enough of me apping. But I just wanted to once again say how grateful I am to everyone who has listened to the show. Because of you, I get to do what I'm doing right now which is traveling and working on my own schedule, pretty much. Um, And I get to read into a microphone on the edge of a beach for work because of you. So thank you so much. really means so much that uh, you've come back to the show and it keeps helping you. And I really, really, really hope that I can keep giving you stories that you like. Tonight, Oliver Twist, by Charles Dickens. Now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow, just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes, and let me read to you. CHAPTER ONE Among other public buildings in a certain town, which for many reasons it will be prudent to refrain from mentioning, and to which I will assign no fictitious name, there is one anciently common to most towns, great or small, to wit, a workhouse, and in this workhouse was born, on a day and date which I need not trouble myself to repeat, inasmuch as it can be of no possible consequence to the reader in this stage of the business at all events, the item of mortality whose name is prefixed to the head of this chapter. For a long time, after it was ushered into this world of sorrow and trouble by the parish surgeon, it remained a matter of considerable doubt whether the child would survive to bear any name at all in which case it is somewhat more than probable that these memoirs would never have appeared, or if they had, the being comprised within a couple of pages, they would have possessed the inestimable merit of being the most concise and faithful specimen of biography, extant in the literature of any age or country. Although I am not disposed to maintain that the being born in a workhouse is in itself the most fortunate and enviable circumstance that can possibly befall a human being, I do mean to say that in this particular instance it was the best thing for Oliver Twist that could by possibility have occurred. The fact is that there was considerable difficulty in inducing Oliver to take upon himself the office. Of respiration, a troublesome practice, but one which custom had rendered necessary to our easy existence. For some time he lay gasping on a little flock mattress, rather unequally poised between this world and the next, the balance being decidedly in favor of the latter. Now, if during this brief period Oliver had been surrounded, by careful grandmothers, anxious aunts, experienced nurses, and doctors of profound wisdom, he would most inevitably and indubitably have been killed in no time. There being nobody by, however, but a pauper old woman who was rendered rather misty by an unwanted allowance of beer and a parish surgeon who did such matters by contract, Oliver, and nature fought out the point between them. The result was that, after a few struggles, Oliver breathed, sneezed, and proceeded to advertise to the inmates of the workhouse the fact of a new burden having been imposed upon the parish by setting up as loud a cry as could reasonably have been expected from a male infant who had not possessed of that very useful appendage a voice. For a much longer space of time Than three minutes and a quarter As Oliver gave this first proof Of the free and proper actions Of his lungs The patchwork coverlet Which was carelessly flung Over the iron bedstead Rustled The pale face of a young woman Was raised feebly from the pillow And a faint voice Imperfectly articulated the word Let me see the child And die The surgeon had been sitting with his face turned towards the fire, giving the palms of his hands a warm and a rub alternately. As the young woman spoke, he rose, and advancing to the bed's head, said, with more kindness than might have been expected of him, Oh, you must not talk about dying yet. Lord bless her heart, no, interposed the nurse hastily depositing in her pocket a green glass bottle, the contents of which she had been tasting in a corner with evident satisfaction. Lord, bless her dear heart, when she has lived as long as I have, sir, and had thirteen children of her own, and all of them dead except two, and them and the workers with me. She'll know better than to take on in that way. Bless her dear heart. Think what it is to be a Mother. There's a dear young lamb, do. Apparently this consolatory perspective of a mother's prospects had failed in producing its due effect. The patient shook her head and stretched out her hands toward the child. The surgeon deposited in her arms. She imprinted her cold white lips passionately on its forehead, passed her hands over her face, gazed wildly around, shuddered, fell back, and died. They chafed her breast, hands and temples, but the blood had stopped forever. They talked of hope and comfort. They had been strangers too long. It's all over, Miss Thingummy," said the surgeon at last. Ah, poor dear, so it is, said the nurse, picking up the cork of the green bottle which had fallen out on the pillow as she stooped to take up the child. Poor dear. You needn't mind sending up to me if the child cries, nurse, said the surgeon, putting on his gloves with great deliberation. It's very likely it will be troublesome. Give it a little gruel if it is. He put on his hat and pausing by the bedside on his way to the door, added, She was a good-looking girl, too. Where did she come from? She was brought here last night, replied the old woman, by the overseer's order. She was found lying on the street. She had walked some distance, for her shoes were worn to pieces. But where she came from, or where she was going to, nobody knows. The surgeon leaned over the body and raised the left hand. The old story, he said, shaking his head, no wedding ring I see. Ah, good night. The medical gentleman walked away to dinner, and the nurse, having once more applied herself to the green bottle, sat down in a low chair before the fire and proceeded to dress the infant. What an excellent example of the power of dress young Oliver Twist was, wrapped in the blanket which had hitherto formed his only covering. He might have been the child of a nobleman or a beggar. It would have been hard for the haughtiest stranger To have assigned him his proper station in society But now that he was enveloped in the old calico robes Which had grown yellow in the same service He was badged and ticketed And fell into his place at once A parish child The orphan of a workhouse The humble, half-starved drudge To be cuffed and buffeted through the world Despised by all And pitied by none Oliver cried lustily, if he could have known that he was an orphan, left to the tender mercies of church wardens and overseers, perhaps he would have cried the louder. Chapter 2 For the next eight or ten months, Oliver was the victim of a systemic course of treachery and deception, He was brought up by hand. The hungry and destitute situation of the infant orphan was duly reported by the workhouse authorities to the parish authorities. The parish authorities inquired with dignity of the workhouse authorities whether there was no female then domiciled in the house who was in a situation to impart to Oliver Twist the consolation and nourishment of which he stood in need. The workhouse authorities replied, with humility, that there was not. Upon this the parish authorities magnanimously and humanely resolved that Oliver should be farmed, or in other words, that he should be dispatched to a branch workhouse some three miles off, where twenty or thirty other juvenile offenders against the poor laws rolled about the floor all day, without the inconvenience of too much food or too much clothing under the parental superintendence of an elderly female who received the culprits at and for the consideration of seven pence half penny per small head per week. Sevenpence pence half pennies worth per week is a good round diet for a child. A great deal may be got for seven pence half penny, quite enough to overload its stomach and make it uncomfortable. The elderly female was a woman of wisdom and experience. She knew what was good for children, and she had a very accurate perception of what was good for herself. So she appropriated the greater part of the weekly stipend to her own use and consigned the rising parochial generation to even a shorter allowance than was originally provided for them, thereby finding in the lowest depth the deeper still and proving herself a very great experimental philosopher. Everybody knows the story of another experimental philosopher who had a great theory about a horse being able to live without eating, and who demonstrated it so well that he got his own horse down to a straw a day, and would unquestionably have rendered him a very spirited and rampacious animal and nothing at all if he had not died four twenty hours before he was to have had his first comfortable beta bear. Unfortunately for the experimental philosophy of the female to whose protecting care Oliver Twist was delivered over, a similar result usually attended the operation of her system. For at the very moment when a child had contrived to exist upon the smallest possible portion of the weakest possible food, it did perversely happen in eight and a half cases out of ten either that it sickened from want and cold, or fell into the fire from neglect, or got half smothered by accident. In any which of the cases, the miserable little being was usually summoned into another world, and there gathered to the fathers it had never known in this. Occasionally, when there was some more than usually interesting inquest upon a parish child, who had been overlooked in turning up a bedstead or inadvertently scalded to death when there happened to be a washing. Though the latter accident was very scarce, anything approaching to washing being of a rare occurrence in the farm, the jury would take it into their heads to ask troublesome questions, or the parishioners would rebelliously affix their signatures to remonstrance. But these impertinences were speedily checked by the evidence of the surgeon and the testimony of the beetle, the former of whom had always opened the body and found nothing inside, which was very probable, indeed, and the latter of whom invariably swore whatever the parish wanted, which was very self-devotional. Besides, the board made periodical pilgrimages to the farm and always sent the beetle the day before to say that they were going the children were neat and clean to behold when they went and what more would the people have it cannot be expected that this system of farming would produce any very extraordinary or luxuriant crop Oliver Twist's ninth birthday found him a pale thin child somewhat diminutive in stature and decidedly small in circumference. But nature, or inheritance, had implanted a good, sturdy spirit in Oliver's breast. It had had plenty of room to expand, thanks to the spare diet of the establishment. And perhaps, to this circumstance may be attributed, his having any ninth birthday at all. Be this as it may, however, it was his ninth birthday, and he was keeping it in the coal cellar with a select party of two other young gentlemen who, after participating with him in a sound thrashing, had been locked up for atrociously presuming to be hungry. When Mrs. Mann, the good lady of the house, was unexpectedly startled by the apparition of Mr. Bumble, the beetle, striving to undo the wicket of the garden gate, Goodness gracious, is that you, Mr. Bumble, sir, said Mrs. Mann, thrusting her head out of the window in well-affected ecstasies of joy. Susan, take Oliver and them two brats upstairs and wash them directly. My heart alive, Mr. Bumble, how glad I am to see you, surely. Now Mr. Bumble was a fat man and a choleric. So instead of responding to this open-hearted salutation in a kindred spirit, he gave the little wicket a tremendous shake, and then bestowed upon it a kick, which could have emanated from no leg but a beetle's. "Lord, only think,' said Mrs. Mann, running out, for the three boys have been removed by this time. "'Only think of that, that I should have forgotten that the gate was bolted on the inside on account of them dear children.' Walk in, sir. Walk in. Pray, Mr. Bumble. Do, sir. Although this invitation was accompanied with a curtsy that might have softened the heart of a church warden, it by no means mollified the beetle. Do you think this respectful or proper conduct, Mrs. Mann, inquired Mr. Bumble, grasping his cane, to keep the parish officers awaiting at your garden gate? When they come here upon parochial business connected with the parochial orphans. Are you aware, Mrs. Mann, that you are, as I may say, a parochial delegate and a stipendary? I'm sure, Mr. Bumbo, that I was only telling one or two of the dear children, as is so fond of you, that it was you a coming, replied Mrs. Mann with great humility. Mr. Bumble had a great idea of his oratorical powers and his importance. He displayed the one and vindicated the other. He relaxed. Well, well, Mrs. Mann, he replied in a calmer tone. It may be as you say. It may be. Lead the way in, Mrs. Mann, for I come on business and have something to say. Mrs. Mann ushered the beetle into a small parlor with a brick floor, placed a seat for him, and officiously deposited his cocked hat and cane on the table before him. Mr. Bumble wiped from his forehead the perspiration which his walk had engendered, glanced complacently at the cocked hat, and smiled. Yes, he smiled. Beetles are but men, and Mr. Bumble smiled. "'Now don't you be offended at what I'm going to say,' observed Mrs. Mann, with captivating sweetness. "'You've had a long walk, you know, or I wouldn't mention it. "'Now will you take a little drop of something, Mr. Bumble?' "'Not a drop, not a drop,' said Mr. Bumble, "'waving his right hand in a dignified but placid manner. "'I think you will,' said Mrs. Mann who had noticed the tone of the refusal and the gesture that had accompanied it. Just a little drop, with a little cold water and a lump of sugar. Mr. Bumble coughed. Now, just a little drop, said Mrs. Mann persuasively. What is it? inquired the beetle. Why, it's what I'm obliged to keep a little of in this house to put into Blessed Infants Daffy. When they ain't well, Mr. Bumble, replied Mrs. Mann as she opened the corner cupboard and took down a bottle and glass. It's gin. I'll not deceive you, Mr. B. It's gin. Do you give the children Daffy, Mrs. Mann, inquired Bumble, following his eyes the interesting process of mixing. Ah, bless him. That I do, dear as it is, replied the nurse. I couldn't see him suffer before my very eyes, you know, sir. No, said Mr. Bumble approvingly. No, you could not. You are a humane woman, Mrs. Mann. Here she set down the glass. I shall take an early opportunity of mentioning to the board, Mrs. Mann. He drew it towards him. You feel as a mother, Mrs. Mann. He stirred the gin and water. I. I drink your health with cheerfulness, Mrs. Mann. And he swallowed half of it. And now about business, said the beetle, taking out a leathern pocketbook. The child that was half-baptized, Oliver Twist, is nine-year-old today. Bless him, intersposed Mrs. Mann, inflaming her left eye with the corner of her apron and notwithstanding an offered reward of ten pound, which was afterwards increased to twenty pound. Notwithstanding the most superlative, and I may say supernatural, exertions on the part of this parish, said Bumble, we have never been able to discover who is his father, or what his mother's settlement name or condition Mrs. Mann raised her hands in astonishment, but added, after a moment's reflection, How come he has any name at all, then? The beetle drew himself up with great pride and said, I invented it. You, Mr. Bumble. I, Mrs. Mann, we name our foundlings in alphabetical order. The last was an S. Swabble, I named him. This was a T. Twist, I named him. The next one, as comes, will be Unwin. And the next, Vilkins. I've got names ready made to the end of the alphabet, and all the way through it again, when we come to see. Why, you're quite a literary character, sir, said Mrs. Mann. Well, well, said the beetle, evidently gratified with the compliment. Perhaps I may be, perhaps I may be, Mrs. Mann. He finished the gin and water and added, Oliver, being now too old to remain here, the board have determined to have him back into the house. I've come out myself to take him there, So let me see him at once. I'll fetch him directly, said Mrs. Mann, leaving the room for that purpose. Oliver, having had by this time as much of the outer coat of dirt which encrusted his face and hands, removed as could be scrubbed off in one washing, was led into the room by his benevolent protectress. "'Make a bow to the gentleman, Oliver,' said Mrs. Mann. Oliver made a bow, which was divided between the beetle on the chair and the cocked hat on the table.' "'Will you go along with me, Oliver?' said Mr. Bumble, in a majestic voice. "'Oliver was about to say that he would go along with anybody with great readiness. "'When glancing upward, he had caught sight of Mrs. Mann, "'who got behind the beetle chair and was shaking her fist at him with a furious countenance. "'He took the hint at once, for the fist had been too often pressed upon his body.' Not to be deeply impressed upon his recollection. Will she go with me? inquired poor Oliver. No, she can't, replied Mr. Bumble, but she'll come and see you sometimes. This was no very great consolation to the child. Young as he was, however, he had sense enough to make a feint of feeling great regret at going away. It was no very difficult matter for the boy to call tears to his eyes hunger and recent ill usage are great assistance if you want to cry and Oliver cried very naturally indeed Mrs. Mann gave him a thousand embraces and what Oliver wanted a great deal more a piece of bread and butter lest he should seem too hungry when he got to the workhouse with the slice of bread in his hand and the little brown cloth parish cap On his head, Oliver was then led away by Mr. Bumble from the wretched home where one kind word or look had never lighted the gloom of his infant years. And yet he burst into an agony of childish grief as the cottage gate closed after him. Wretched as were the little companions in misery he was leaving behind. They were the only friends he had ever known. In a sense of his loneliness, and the great wide world sank into the child's heart for the first time. Mr. Bumble walked on with great long strides. Little Oliver, firmly grasping his gold lace cuff, trotted beside him, inquiring at the end of every quarter of a mile whether they were nearly there. To the interrogations, Mr. Bumble returned very brief and snappish replies. For the temporary blandness which gin and water awakens in some bosoms had by this time evaporated and he was once again a beetle. Oliver had not been within the walls of the workhouse a quarter of an hour and had scarcely completed the demolition of a second slice of bread when Mr. Bumble who had handed him over to the care of the old woman returned and telling him it was a board night informed him that the board had said he was to appear before it, forthwith. Not having a very clearly defined notion of what a live board was, Oliver was rather astounded by this intelligence. And was not quite certain whether he ought to laugh or cry. He had no time to think about the matter, however, for Mr. Bumble gave him a tap on the head with his cane to wake him up, and another on the back to make him lively. And bidding him follow, conducted him into a large whitewashed room where eight or ten fat gentlemen were sitting round a table. At the top of the table, seated in an armchair rather higher than the rest, was a particularly fat gentleman with a very round red face. Bow to the board, said Bumble. Oliver brushed away two or three tears that were lingering in his eyes and seeing no board but the table fortunately bowed to that. What's your name, boy? said the gentleman in the high chair. Oliver was frightened at the sight of so many gentlemen which made him tremble and the beetle gave him another tap behind which made him cry. These two causes made him answer in a very low and hesitating voice whereupon a gentleman in a white waistcoat said he was a fool which was a capital way of raising his spirits and putting him quite at his ease boy said the gentleman in the high chair listen to me you know you're an orphan I suppose what's that sir inquired poor Oliver the boy is a fool I thought he was said the gentleman in the white waistcoat Hush said the gentleman who had spoken first You know you've got no father or mother and that you were brought up by the parish don't you? Yes sir replied Oliver weeping bitterly What are you crying for? inquired the gentleman in the white waistcoat And to be sure it was very extraordinary What could the boy be crying for? I hope you say your prayers every night, said another gentleman in a gruff voice, and pray for the people that feed you and take care of you like a Christian. Yes, sir, stammered the boy. The gentleman who spoke last was unconsciously right. It would have been very like a Christian, and a marvelously good Christian, too, if Oliver had prayed for the people who fed and took care of him. But he hadn't because nobody had taught him. Well, you have come here to be educated and taught a useful trade, said the red-faced gentleman in the high chair. So you'll begin to pick oakum tomorrow morning at six o'clock, added the surly one in the white waistcoat. For the combination of both these blessings and the one simple process of picking oakum, Oliver bowed low by the direction of the beetle, and was then hurried away to a large ward, where on a rough, hard bed he sobbed himself to sleep. What a noble illustration of the tender laws of England. They let the paupers go to sleep. Poor Oliver. He little thought, as he lay sleeping in happy unconsciousness of all around him, that the board had that very day arrived at a decision which would exercise the most material influence over all his future fortunes. But they had, and this was it. The members of this board were very sage, deep, philosophical men, and when they came to turn their attention to the workhouse, they found at once what ordinary folks would never have discovered. The poor people liked it. It was a regular place of public entertainment for the poorer classes, the tavern, where there was nothing to pay. A public breakfast, dinner, tea, and supper all the year round. A brick-and-mortar Elysium, where it was all play and no work. oh said the board, looking very knowing. We are the fellows to set this to right. We'll stop it all in no time. So they established the rule that all poor people should have the alternative, for they would compel nobody, not they, of being starved by a gradual process in the house or by a quick one out of it. With this view, they contracted with the waterworks to lay on an unlimited supply of water and with a corn factor to supply periodically small quantities of oatmeal, and issued three meals of thin gruel a day With an onion twice a week And a half a roll on Sundays They made a great many other wise and humane regulations Having reference to the ladies Which it is not necessary to repeat Kindly undertook to divorce poor married people In consequence of the great expense Of a suit in doctor's commons And instead of compelling a man To support his family As they had theretofore done took his family away from him and made him a bachelor. There is no saying how many applicants for relief under these last two heads might have started up in all classes of society if it had not been coupled with the workhouse. But the board were long-headed men, and had provided for this difficulty. The relief was inseparable from the workhouse and the gruel, and that frightened people. For the first six months after Oliver Twist was removed, the system was in full operation. It was rather expensive at first, in consequence of the increase in the undertaker's bill and the necessity of taking in the clothes of all the paupers, which fluttered loosely on their wasted, shrunken forms after a week or two's gruel. But the number of workhouse inmates got thin as well as the paupers, and the board were in ecstasies. The room in which the boys were fed was a large stone hall with a copper at one end, out of which the master, dressed in an apron for the purpose and assisted by one or two women, ladled the gruel at mealtimes. Of this festive composition, each boy had one porringer and no more, except on occasions of great public rejoicing when he had two ounces and a quarter of bread besides. The bowls never wanted washing. The boys polished them with their spoons till they had shone again. And when they had performed this operation, which never took very long, the spoons being nearly as large as the bowls, they would sit staring at the copper with such eager eyes as if they could have devoured the very bricks of which it was composed employing themselves meanwhile and sucking their fingers most assiduously with the view of catching up any stray splashes of gruel that might have been cast thereon. Boys have generally excellent appetites. Oliver Twist and his companions suffered the tortures of slow starvation for three months. Alas, they got so voracious and wild with hunger that one boy, who was tall for his age, and hadn't been used to that sort of thing, for his father had kept a small cook shop, hinted darkly to his companions that unless he had another basin of gruel per diem, he was afraid he might some night happen to eat the boy who slept next to him, who happened to be a weakly youth of tender age. He had a wild, hungry eye, and they implicitly believed him. A council was held. Lots were cast who should walk up to the master after supper that evening and ask for more, and it fell to Oliver Twist. The evening had arrived. The boys took their places. The master in his cook's uniform stationed himself at the copper. His pauper assistants ranged themselves behind him. The gruel was served out, and a long grace was said over the short commons. The grill disappeared The boys whispered To each other And winked at Oliver While his next neighbors nudged him Child as he was He was desperate with hunger And reckless with misery He rose from the table And advancing to the master Basin and spoon in hand Said Somewhat alarmed at his own temerity Please sir I want some more. The master was a fat, healthy man, but he turned very pale. He gazed in stupefied astonishment on the small rebel for some seconds, and then clung for support to the copper. The assistants were paralyzed with wonder, the boys with fear. What? said the master at length, in a faint voice. Please, sir replied Oliver I want some more the master aimed a blow at Oliver's head with the ladle pinioned him in his arms and shrieked aloud for the beetle the board were sitting in solemn conclave when Mr. Bumble rushed into the room in great excitement and addressing the gentleman in the high chair said Mr. Limpkins I beg your pardon sir Oliver Twist has asked for more. There was a general start. Horror was depicted on every countenance. For more, said Mr. Limpkins. Compose yourself, Bumble, and answer me distinctly. Do I understand that he asked for more after he had eaten the suppler allotted by the dietary? He did, sir, replied Bumble. That boy will be hung, said the gentleman in the white waistcoat. I know that boy will be hung. Nobody controverted the prophetic gentleman's opinion. An animated discussion took place. Oliver was ordered into instant confinement, and a bill was next morning pasted on the outside of the gate, offering a reward of five pounds to anybody who would take Oliver Twist off the hands of the parish. In other words, five pounds in Oliver Twist were offered to any man or woman who wanted an apprentice to any trade, business, or calling. I never was more convinced of anything in my life, said the gentleman in the white waistcoat as he knocked at the gate and read the bill the next morning. I never was more convinced of anything in my life than I am that that boy will come to be hung As I purpose to show in the sequel whether the white waistcoated gentleman was right or not, I should perhaps mar the interest of this narrative, supposing it is to possess any at all, if I venture to hint just yet whether the life of Oliver Twist had this violent termination or no.